Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. There are at least two ways to look at Mears Island. Depending on your point of view, it is either an island garden with trees and fish and wildlife. Or you can look down and see $25 million worth of commercial timber and 240 jobs. Our position is that we intend to log Mears Island. And as far as we're concerned, this is our garden, and we will not let you fall any trees here. The war in the woods. Up until recently, it was Canada's largest act of civil disobedience. In the 1980s and 90s, the protest aimed to stop old-growth logging on Vancouver Island's west coast near the town of Tofino. And in the case of Mears Island, First Nations took a stand, both in blockades and in court to make clear their claim that the land belonged to them. The loggers weren't amused. This nonsense about uh, land claims not being settled and then you can't, uh, you can't log if that argument is to continue. It'll basically shut down British Columbia. <coughs> yes, we're going to defy the law. We've decided that our survival is a hell of a lot more important than Justice Gibbs' ruling. The people of the Nochonath are making their stand on Mears Island. They are standing around those mighty trees. Enough is enough. Because of that fight, the ancient cedars of Mears Island still stand. How old do you think this tree is that we're standing in front of? This is a really big tree. I mean, this could be 1,200 or more years old. Wow. For sure. You heard that wow there. (laughs) Emily, that was your wow. What was it like (laughs) to stand in front of that tree? Yes, it was. And it was a well-deserved wow. (laughs) So majestic, Laura, to be in front of a living thing that is just, you know, has been around for that long. And by the way, that's Emily Vance. She's a reporter with CBC Victoria. I'm Laura Lynch. This is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. And today, Emily is taking us to Mears Island for a story we're calling Parks and Reclamation. Welcome, Emily. Thank you, Laura. Hi. So what brought you to stand in front of those gorgeous ancient trees? (laughs) So, okay, the reason I went just about as far west as you can go in Canada was to tell a story about the ways that First Nations are reasserting leadership when it comes to conservation in their traditional territories. So I've been working on stories about how on Vancouver Island, First Nations are increasingly taking leadership positions within the provincial and federal park systems, and beyond that, creating their own version of parks and protected areas. I focused on the region of Clackwood Sound, but this is just one example of a growing movement across the country. Right. We've talked on the show before about Indigenous people, First Nations leading efforts to conserve land and water on their territories. And we know that the federal government and other observers say Indigenous-led projects are actually key to Canada's conservation targets. 
Absolutely. But you know, declaring these conservation areas is a lot easier said than done. As you can imagine, there are often competing interests in the land, from development to resource extraction to unsettled land claims between indigenous and crown governments. And today, I want to take you on a journey to see how it's all playing out in my corner of the country. And those footsteps, those are the sound of myself and Saya Masu walking down the Big Tree Trail on Mears Island. And Saya Masu is the natural resources manager for the Tlokoyat First Nation. Of course, now we're fast forwarding almost 40 years from the war in the woods. And Mears Island was calm and quiet. Mears Island is in the t- traditional territory of the Tlokoyat First Nation. And it's a place that Saya is pretty passionate about. It's a mountain of forests with foreshores of waterfowl and eelgrass and sustenance. It is a, a forest loaded with flora and fauna, medicinal plants. And you could see the, the impact that our people have had on the mountains and the, and the landscape through our use of pulling cedar boards off of trees. You can see evidence of these longhouse boards that have pulled off of these 1,200-year-old trees and um, yeah, it's an intact watershed and fully functioning ecosystem. Well, that really gives me a good visual of it. And I can just see you walking along that boardwalk, looking up into those trees and everything <laughs> around you. So as I understand it, Mears Island wasn't only spared from clear-cut logging, but it's now actually considered a conservation zone by the Tlokiet First Nation. Can you walk me through how that happened? Well, after a series of protests in 1984, the First Nations and the logging company, McMillan Blodell, turned to the courts. Ultimately, B.C.'s top court ruled to halt the logging until those outstanding land claims were settled by the province. And that, of course, was not good news for the logging industry. It's one of B.C.'s biggest natural resource industries, and there is a lot of money at stake. The ruling put an effective end to the logging on Mears Island and to the related court actions, but that question of the land claim, it remains till this day. So while this was all going on in the courts, the Tlokoyat declared they wanted Mears Island to be an area of conservation, as you mentioned. They claimed it as something they called a tribal park. And ever since then, the Tlokoyat, as well as the Ahousit First Nation and neighboring nation, have been working as environmental stewards of the island. Okay, that that sounds like a step toward Indigenous-led conservation. How does a tribal park work? So it's not a designation that's formally recognized by the provincial government. Saya said it's more like the nation's way of sharing their land vision with municipal, provincial and federal governments, all of whom have different jurisdictions in the tribal parks. And Laura, we touched on the money at stake for the logging industry, but there's something else at stake, too. You know, it wasn't a big part of the conversation at the time. But now we know that old growth forests play an important role in storing and sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. And that knowledge informs the way Tlokuyat manage the land today. Okay, so what, what does that management look like? Well, the Tlokuyat do quite a lot of stewardship work on Mears Island. They've been in treaty negotiations with the province to claim formal ownership of parts of their land, but they haven't been able to reach an agreement. And today, the Tlokuyat have actually declared their entire territory to fall within four tribal parks. And to this day, Saya Masu says the nation doesn't want vast tracts of forests cut down. Which leads to, you know, deforestation and broken rivers, impacted fisheries uh, and drinking water. Our vision clearly maps out which rivers need to be restored and, and, and salmon recovery programs in place. Our goal isn't sustainability. Our goal is abundance. 
As for where the provincial government falls in all this, I spoke with Nathan Cullen. He's BC's Minister of Waterlands and Resource Stewardship. I spoke with him about the province's support for establishing more Indigenous protected and conserved areas. And he told me they are working with Indigenous governments right across BC to work together on things like data sharing and research science. He said there's some funding available for nations to restore parts of their territory that have been damaged by resource industries. And Saya also told me that the nation is in talks with the province to defer logging in some old growth areas. And so the nation isn't against all forms of forestry. They just want it to be done in a way that minimizes damage to the environment. And I know we've heard on the show before about guardian programs as a key part of Indigenous-led conservation. Is that an element of the tribal park operation? Yes, it's a big part, actually. So guardians are trained experts that work in a variety of roles. They act as the eyes and ears of a First Nation out on the land. Think like a park ranger meets a biologist meets a cultural interpreter. And actually, you know, this is happening right across Canada. There are more than 120 similar programs run by First Nations. Saya runs the Tolokwiat's Guardian program, which employs 10 full-time members, and they oversee a wide swath of territory, from beaches to forests, watersheds, lakes, and rivers. And it's our role to be out there. Um, We've been doing beach cleanups, coastline cleanups. We form partnerships to rebuild our rivers, partnerships to remove ocean debris, and uh, uh, also to keep it natural, such as going after removing invasive species of plants or the invasive European green crab. It's interesting what you're hearing there is obviously ecological stewardship of the land, but that's also part of uh, their sovereignty. This is their land and they're taking care of it. Yeah, that's right. You know, from what I've heard, claiming ownership of the land and taking care of it go hand in hand for the Tolokwiat. And that dual restoration of forests and salmon that they're talking about is also a potent climate solution. You know, there's a lot of research about the role that forests, and especially old growth forests, play in storing and sequestering carbon. And salmon are actually a key part of that forest health also. So they provide really great fertilizer for trees and other plants. At the end of their life cycle, you know, we know that they spawn and die in the riverbed. But actually, as they decompose, they pass key nutrients into the soil. More than a few articles I read about this relationship describe salmon as a conveyor belt that brings nutrients and protein from the ocean deep into the inland forests. And then these nutrients, you know, they're spread throughout the forests. The bears fish for salmon. They drag them into the forests and leave the salmon bones to decompose, which then feeds the soil away from the riverbanks and And, on and and on. And on and on. And voila, you have an ecosystem. Yes, you do. (laughs) And, uh, you know, to spread the word about the ecosystem is part of what Tolokwiat are up to. Um, They maintain a cedar boardwalk on the Mears Island called the Big Tree Trail that they call an educational boardwalk. So it winds through that dense forest of towering cedar, spruce and hemlock. As you heard earlier, it really lives up to its name. And Saya's hope for that trail is that it gets people passionate about old growth forests and, and these ecosystems. I bet that trail gets a fair amount of visitors. I'd love to go and Tofino can be quite the tourism hotspot. Yes, it is a busy place these days. So from, you know, the little town that was based around logging, fishing and mining, it has turned into an international destination. It draws more than half a million tourists every year. And these days, you know, Tofino is known for its big, long, sandy beaches filled with surfers, luxury oceanside resorts, whale watching trips. And the Tolokwiat First Nation are not the only nation in the area that are hoping to use tourism as a force for good. Right, because you mentioned there are five other First Nations in Clockwood 
somewhat sound region. That's right. So let's continue our journey to a pretty magical place called Hot Springs Cove. So that's the sound of the water at Hot Springs Cove. It's just northwest of Tofino, up the coast of Vancouver Island, in the traditional territory of the Ahouset First Nation. And in order to get to the springs, you have to take a boat or a plane to get to the edge of the park, and then walk a two-kilometer cedar boardwalk through the coastal rainforest to reach the springs. And when I went, the ground was just covered in ferns, the salmon berries were in full bloom, and the entire place just smelled like fresh, wet dirt, but in the best way. Okay, Emily, this is getting hard for me to listen to because my jealousy is increasing (laughs) with every description you're giving me here. I hope you took advantage of the springs. Yes, we took a good soak in the springs, you know, like so (sighs) many people. (laughs) And Laura, let me continue to mentally project you there. We've got these hot springs cascading like a waterfall into three natural pools, you know, set into a rocky coastal shoreline. And, you know, of course, this place is incredibly popular with tourists. And it used to be really, really busy, like hundreds of people each day. But the Ahouset First Nation have taken an active role in park management, and they, alongside BC Park, parks have limited the number of commercial tours that can come to the springs because that overuse of the springs was really taking its toll on the natural environment. I'm going to introduce you to Tyson Atlio. He's a hereditary leader with the nation. He's also the climate solutions director with a charity called Nature United. That's a name that's pretty self-explanatory. I bet they work on nature and try to bring people together. Bingo, they do. I'm so smart. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And Tyson came with us on our trip to the Springs. And so it means a lot to be recognized as a First Nation that can contribute not only to the quality of life here in Tofino for our community, but for the people of Tofino, British Columbians, Canadians, and of course the commitment we have as a First Nation to supporting efforts against the climate crisis through bodies of restoration and stewardship work that we're leading. Now, it strikes me it's a different kind of approach than the Tolokwiat are taking, because whereas that nation's established its their own park system, the Ahouset is working within the existing provincial park system. Exactly. And so the approaches when it comes to how they interact with the, the government system, it differs. But that commitment to taking care of the environment is the same at its core. And Tyson told me that the nation sees the stewardship of their territory as their inherent responsibility as a Housit people. Ahouset Adventures is officially open! And so you're hearing the sounds of celebration as the nation launched its own ecotourism company this summer. And so their guides take people to the springs, they show them the abundant wildlife of the region. Tyson told me they've been historically shut out of the tourism sector, but he really hopes that this is a turning point. And you know, not only is it providing jobs for members of the nation, but it lets them share an environmental message. Here is Tyson again. Indigenous cultural perspectives, such as the Ahouset have, for stewarding and caretaking natural resources are ones that the world can benefit from. And so the more people that are able to come and visit and see stewardship and development from our perspective, we think that we can share that message in a way that will really inspire others to think and and act differently. And just like the Tolokwiat First Nation, the Ahouset also run an extensive guardian program throughout their entire territory. It sounds like this work is well underway in Clockwood Sound. I'm wondering how well it mirrors the work going on in other parts of the country. 
This conservation work is happening all across Canada, and leaders in the movement are pretty firm that Indigenous-led conservation is going to be key in the fight against climate change. Valérie Courtois is the executive director of the Indigenous Leadership Initiative. It supports First Nations to carry out conservation work. She's also a forester, and she's done a lot of work preserving Canada's boreal forests and wetlands. The number one solution that we can do is to keep that carbon in place and to protect those areas. As soon as there are development projects or other initiatives in those landscapes, it can result in the release of carbon. And so that's why conservation and keeping those areas intact is is one of the important strategies that we can do and and one of the easiest things that we can do uh, in terms of response for climate change. It's much easier to create a protected area than it is to develop a carbon capture technology, for example. Now, that push to protect 30% of land and waters by 2030 is a global movement. Close to 190 countries have signed on to it. How much of a difference, though, can conservation in Canada make in that global fight against climate change? Well, there is a lot of opportunity, first of all, just because of you know how much land and water there is to conserve in Canada. But Valerie is also hopeful that Canada can be a global role model. But the boreal forest in what is now known as Canada is is a part of the largest intact forest left on the planet. Canada is the second largest country in the world. We've got the benefits, but also the responsibility to take care of those areas. We're also a country of law and order and good governance, and and we've got strong Indigenous peoples who are taking on that responsibility. And so we have to, as a country, be a bit of a beacon of hope Uh, for the rest of the world. And if we can do it here in Canada, then they should be able to do it in other places. And there are relationships being built internationally between Indigenous peoples and nations in Canada to Indigenous peoples and nations around the world. I want to end on the words of Terry Dorward. He's a member of Tolokwiat and was part of establishing the nation's guardian program. When we met up, he was telling me about a recent trip to Costa Rica where he met up with Indigenous people there who also work in conservation. And he now works for a foundation that helps First Nations implement Indigenous-led conservation in their territories. Uh, We've had industry come into our territories and completely um, destroy areas. And who's left standing is the Indigenous people to clean it up. Uh, We're way past the 11th hour. Uh, We need to act, and we need to act now. As Indigenous people, you know, we've been separated, we've been dislocated, we've been marginalized, we've been dislocated from our own territories. That time is over. The time for uh, reclaiming and, and revitalizing our roles and responsibilities are now for not only our Indigenous nations, uh, but for solving, you know, this world crisis that we're all part of. And that's certainly a sentiment uh, that I've heard before talking to people um, on our show. I appreciate you bringing this story to us, Emily, even if you had to go through the hardship of, you know, sitting in a hot spring and <laughs> going to see majestic trees. <laughs> yes, uh, perks of the job. <laughs> thank you, Laura. Emily, thank you.
you can always email us at earth at cbc.ca about anything you hear on the program. But there's something in particular we'd like to hear about from you this week. But on Earth, Rachel Sanders is here now to talk about it. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Laura. And what have you got there? Well, this thing. Yeah, this. That thing. <laughs> this is the bowl from my food processor. Okay, and that is here because? Because it's broken. Uh, look at the, this bottom piece here. The plastic snapped, yeah. so it won't fasten onto the base of the food processor anymore. And this is the second time this has happened. Just this tiny little piece of plastic snapped. I replaced the bowl a few years ago when it happened, and then it broke again a few months later. Um. Well, why not fix it again? Well, I've thought about it, but the replacement <laughs> bowl plus shipping now would cost me $80. And the last time I repaired it, I think it cost me at least $50. <laughs> so wait a sec. How much does the whole... How, if you bought a new one, how much would it cost? Well, that's the question, right? I looked it up. I could probably buy a new food processor for about $120. Oh, boy. So, yeah, I've been trying to decide whether I should just replace the whole thing. But the bottom part that this fits onto is this huge, heavy base with a motor in it. And it's in perfect working order. So it seems like an absolute waste to send it to the landfill. How long have you been trying to make the decision? Uh, About five years. Five years? Five years, yeah. Rachel, that is a a model (laughs) of indecision. I know. What's why? It's, well, I don't know. It's just, it is just the principle of the thing, right? I I don't want to spend the money to get it fixed again, uh, but I don't want to throw it out. Like, it's, it drives me crazy. It's been a very long, hard five years of (laughs) hand chopping vegetables while I I tie myself up in knots about this. (laughs) I can hear listeners playing their tiny violins. Yeah. I tell you, though, listeners, though, the listener is the reason I started thinking about my food processor again. We got an email from Suzanne Sloan. Uh, She wrote to us to tell us about an opinion piece she wrote earlier this month for her local paper. It's called the Owen Sound Hub. And the piece she wrote is about a concern she's had for decades. She says, quote, we as a country should legislate planned obsolescence illegal. And that got me thinking about right to repair laws. Right to repair laws would require appliance and electronics manufacturers to make it easier to fix the products they make. Right, because let's just catch up. Planned obsolescence is when... when we believe manufacturers are making things to be either out of date so quickly or flimsy, so you have to buy again. Like this little plastic bit like at that the little plastic bit of the food processor. Okay, exactly. Uh, and this is a climate solution because we're looking at reducing overconsumption. Right. And the EU is working on right to repair regulations. Uh, several U.S. states are working on it as well. California is the latest. And the Canadian government back in March said that it planned to begin consultations on the right to repair in the summer as well. I did not know about that. Yeah. Okay, so um, I think that you've got a task ahead then for our listeners, right? I do. That's right. I want to find out where all of these right to repair laws stand. But first of all, I want to hear from some more of our listeners. Is there something broken that you've had lying around your house that you want to repair? And are you ready to get it fixed? If so, please email us. I want to hear all about it and what's been standing in your way. I also want to hear if you've been, like Rachel, poor thing, chopping all those vegetables by hand. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thanks, Rachel. Thank you, Laura. Oh, great. You've heard from Rachel. You know what the task is. Send us an email, earth at cbc.ca.
Well, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith had her say on this show last week. She came on to defend her climate strategy and push back on the federal government's emissions targets. And when I asked her why she's still backing fossil fuels when forecasts see demand for oil shrinking, here's what she said. When we decarbonize and we have a net zero product, then we should be the last barrels in the market if it comes to that. I I always think that there will be a role for oil and natural gas because it is so valuable. Uh, People want to have net zero vehicles, and that's great, but they're still going to need roads to drive them on. And when they drive them on roads, they'll be driving them on asphalt, and that comes from bitumen. So this is the reason why I am very bullish about this industry and why they're investing so much in decarbonizing, because they're going to be there for decades to come. Most climate scientists, though, agree that bringing the fossil fuel era to a rapid end is the most critical step to saving the planet. Do you ever worry that maybe you might have this wrong, that you're on the wrong side of history? No, I think they're wrong. Um, And I think that the most important thing we should be thinking of right now is how do we bring all the 8 billion people on this planet up to the same level of standard of living and quality of life that we have? And it's going to require us to make sure that we have all hands on deck on energy sources. Energy is the number one thing that determines how a society is able to progress along uh, quality of life and standard of living. And we owe it to the rest of the planet to allow them the opportunity to have everything that we enjoy. Now, that prompted listener Jim Elliott to write, She is dreaming in technicolor. If this is her goal, we and most of the planet will be dead long before we get to that goal. This is also very much a me generation or a first world first approach to global planning, and it's not what is needed today. All right. On the other hand, Bob Plummer says, I found the interview with the Alberta Premier refreshing as opposed to the earlier interview with the Federal Minister of the Environment. The Premier is certainly down to earth. And here's one from David Doust. A couple of weeks ago, while listening to Federal Minister Stephen Guilbeault, I was disappointed by the lack of strong policy to reduce fossil fuel emissions in Canada. Last week, when I heard Alberta Premier Danielle Smith on your show, I better understood the barriers to progress. Smith claimed that climate science is wrong, that renewable energy should move slowly, that oil companies are working hard to decarbonize, and that fossil energy can lift the world's poor. It was a slick presentation, very convincing, and almost entirely wrong. Science tells us that the world is poised to shrug off human civilization and that we have to do something, brackets, decarbonize, quickly. Fortunately, we know how to reduce fossil fuel emissions and are making progress. Unfortunately, oil money is blocking progress, funding misinformation and spreading uncertainty. Premier Smith is pushing the false narrative that there is a reasonable alternative to a rapid, drastic reduction in fossil fuel production. This narrative confuses voters and prevents progressive policy. Change is difficult, but inaction is deadly. Thanks to Rachel for helping me out, and thanks for writing. If you didn't catch the interview, just look for last week's episode wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write us about anything you hear on the show. Again, it is earth at cbc.ca. You're listening to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Coming up, a community group to help protect homes from hurricanes just had its first meeting postponed by, you guessed it, a hurricane. Well, by the time Lee made landfall in Canada, it was a post-tropical storm. But still, we'll hear what the New Brunswick neighbours are hoping to achieve when they finally get together this week.
Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, Melina, I'm setting the timer for one minute. I'm wondering how many examples of indigenous clean energy projects you can list. Ready? Go. Okay. So I have to represent my own home community, Little Buffalo. We have a solar project. Also, I know Beaver Lake Cree First Nation has made one. I also know Athabasca Chippewan First Nation with Mikisuhu Cree First Nation. And also the Métis Nation have one in Fort Chippewan. Let's move over to Ontario. Ontario, we have Gull Bay First Nation. They have an amazing microgrid where they use solar energy to offset their use of diesel. Let's talk about here at Atlin in the Taiku River Tlingit Nation where they have successfully replaced diesel power through the implementation of clean energy micro hydro also six nations one of the largest first nations in all of the country they have literally up to i know it's over 16 renewable energy projects within their territory Haida Gwaii, they've also implemented solar and they're trying to get off the grid which is solely reliant on diesel tofino toloquia first nation has used geothermal to generate heating for their homes kulani first nation also ding they ding have ding ding <laughs> Okay. Wow. Sorry, guys. I thought I thought I thought I could get through at least just those ones, but yeah, not enough time. That was great. It, it's amazing. It is amazing because that was just a tiny taste of the work underway in Indigenous communities on renewable energy projects of all types and sizes. Those projects are helping communities across Canada get off diesel and transition to cleaner ways to power their homes and their lives. And today we're taking a look at climate solutions created, led, and built by Indigenous peoples in the lead-up to the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. My name is Melina Miawapan Lubukan Massimo. I am a member of the Lubukan Cree Nation. I was born in northern Alberta. I'm from the community of Little Buffalo. I have worked on climate and energy issues for over a decade, close to 15 years. I have a master's degree in governance um, from the University of Victoria, and my focus was on renewable energy implementation. I also worked at organizations like as a climate energy campaigner in the past at Greenpeace Canada, and I also am the founder of Sacred Earth Solar. And Melina, welcome to What on Earth? Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. And with that kind of resume, I think our listeners might be able to understand why we wanted you to become our new uh, Indigenous-led climate solutions columnist, and you've kindly agreed to that. So I'm really happy about that. You're going to be bringing us stories about just that, Indigenous-led climate solutions across Canada. But This is actually personal for you. So let's start with that. Tell us about the solar project in your home community. So, yeah, the solar project came actually out of a crisis situation. Um, We had a massive oil spill that was 4.5 million liters. It spilled across our traditional territory. It took over beaver dams and an aquifer and... It was just, you know, people couldn't breathe. Their eyes were burning. They had to shut down the school for close to two weeks. And, you know, I was on the ground and it was just, it was a very traumatizing experience. And I thought to myself, at this point, I had already been working um, to try to 
talk about the climate crisis. This is in 2011. And I was just, I was kind of mortified that no matter how much we talk till we're blue in the face about what's wrong with the system, if we don't start building what we want to see in the system, then we're not going to be better off. And so that's when I thought, oh, well, I want to go back and finish my master's degree and focus on what renewable energy implementation looks like. And so that's what the Pitapan Solar Project was motivated from, was actually a crisis turning it into, you know, ideally a solution in community, a beacon of hope in community, something that was different. It was the first time we ever had solar panels in the community. Um, You know, first time people were seeing solar panels. My auntie, who's 70, she came up to me at our solar launch and she was like, she, you know, she touched my hand and she was like, this is the first time I've ever seen solar panels. You know, (laughs) I've only seen it on TV and I thought that was the only way I don't ever see it in my life. And I was just, you know, things like that where it was just like, I cried tears of joy when we opened up our first shipment into the community. I was with 20-year-olds that were, you know, we had employed from the community to teach them how to put up the project from the start to all the way to the implementation phase. And we just, I just was like, this is the yes to our no. This is what we want to see. This is what communities need to know is possible because a lot of times there isn't options when we stay in community, especially when we're completely surrounded by fossil fuel extraction. So that's one project. How does it fit into that larger picture of Indigenous-run clean energy projects across the country. Yeah, so it was like one project and I felt like I was like a part of this like flourishing solution-based community that wanted to see the change and so you know I became a part of the Indigenous Clean Energy National Steering Council. I went to the Catalyst 2020, met other clean energy Indigenous champions across the country that were putting up projects as well and um, then thought my gosh like how do I promote and show and uplift and profile these projects and so was able to work with Real World Media. We produced a docu-series about projects where we went from coast to coast to coast to profile all of these amazing, incredible renewable energy projects that communities had implemented from themselves. It was inspired from community members and were brought to fruition that were, you know, generating kilowatts on either off-grid or on-grid and just also generating revenue in for the community and it was a whole host of different types of technologies. Um, And so it was just, it was like a gift back, like people need to know these are already happening because I think we're experiencing a lot of climate despair currently and a lot of people are immobilized from that. And if you had to put a number on it, how many do you think we're looking at here? We're looking at, you know, over 2,000 Indigenous-led small to medium-scale renewable energy that are already in fruition are standing and then also over 200 large-scale revenue generating projects. So we're talking hundreds into the thousands and I'm like, why don't people know about this? We need to know that these are already happening. And that's why you're here. So <laughs> that's, why that's why we're talking about it today. But you also want to share stories about Indigenous-led climate solutions that go beyond clean energy projects. What else is on your radar? Well, I mean, eco-housing, about how we build more sustainable housing, housing that works for, you know, in a housing crisis right now across the country, across the world. Um, How do we bring about more robust housing to make us more resilient with a climate crisis? And also, how do we bring about sustainable housing? So housing, as well as food security, you know, we need to talk about we're also in a food 
insecurity crisis where more and more people are having to go to get um, donated food because basically the the prices are too much for peoples and families to be able to pay for uh, over the counter. So we need to learn how to go back to growing our own food, having community gardens, having our own personal gardens in our backyard. So talking about that as well. So I think when we think about renewable energy, what are the other types of renewables too? We think about solar, we think about wind, but what about geo-exchange that communities are implementing, district energy, and you know we'll have to talk about differentiations between what large-scale and small-scale means and how we have impacts as well. And I think just really talking about what communities have implemented and what has worked and maybe what hasn't worked. Now, you've hosted a show about clean energy projects in Indigenous communities. It's called Power to the People, and it airs on APTN and the Weather Network. Can you tell me a little bit more about what's most exciting about the work you see happening? Well, I feel like it provides hope during what we know is the beginning of a climate crisis. And I hope that it's inspiring people to take action because if action isn't being taken, then we are not going to be resilient in the face of the climate crisis. And so we need to know now what communities are doing, take inspiration from communities, take the lessons from communities and that have already kind of dip their toe or like dove into the renewable energy sector to the to the eco housing sector to the um, food security um, sector. So like we need to know what is the diversification across the board. We need to see what's happening. So I feel like we need to see these case studies. We need to and we don't see that. We don't see those being uplifted. What we see in the media, mainstream media, unfortunately, is a lot of like doom and gloom. I'm wondering what more, though, you think federal and provincial government should be doing to help support that work that is happening. Policy and funding. We really need to see robust renewable energy policy across all jurisdictions. But not only that, we need to see it coordinated between local, provincial and federal levels. Because if we do not have enough policy to support communities, companies, and workers to make this transition in a swift manner, that we're not going to actually see it in the face of climate change. It's going to be kind of too little, too late. Now, there have been devastating fires over the past few months. What does that increasing number of climate-related disasters that we've been seeing, what kind of impact does that have on the work that communities are doing to transition to clean energy? For me, it's like, like, I feel like for most of us, um, the fires is a very emotional topic now because I think most of us, especially in the West, but, you know, even people in the East and actually just everywhere across the country, there have been hundreds and thousands of fires and so many, you know, tens of thousands of people evacuating and having to leave their homes for weeks into a month, you know, where we saw for the folks in the Northwest Territories having to just be out of their own community for close to a month. My own family has had to evacuate twice this summer, you know, so we're talking about so many people that have been impacted by forest fires, wildfires, and it just, it makes people more vulnerable because what we see is just, you know, we're not even, we haven't even taken into consideration how even the wildfires themselves are going to exacerbate the climate crisis because of all of those forests that actually are carbon sinks that actually keep 
the carbon in the ground and actually help the earth breathe and give us the oxygen that we all need. And so it's actually going to exacerbate and fuel the climate crisis. And we haven't even really stepped into that. We, we're Right now, is we're just addressing the crisis of the impact where communities are literally fleeing for their lives. The, but I'm, I'm curious to know, with the forest fires, with other wildfires, with other climate-related disasters, I'm wondering, does that slow the work of, of transitioning to clean energy? Does it speed it up? What effect does it have? It speeds up the climate crisis. It speeds up climate change and the impacts of climate change because it exacerbates the amount of carbon emissions that we're actually trying to reduce. But also it makes communities more vulnerable. It slows down in the sense that communities, you know, they're in crisis mode. And when they're in crisis mode, they can't start rebuilding. They have to rebuild just like the basics as opposed to rebuilding renewables, rebuilding all of the things that we actually need to see to actually make communities resilient in the face of climate change. Now, there is work happening, as you've been outlining, on the ground in communities, but there's larger organizations that are helping to support the work You sit on the advisory committee for Indigenous clean energy, for example. What difference does that higher level organizing and advocacy work make? It's really what what I understand for what I see and why I'm a part of the larger national organizations is because we need to see the capacity building within communities and actually providing resources for people to access. Um, so these types of larger organizations are like intermediaries in a way, providing access to historically inaccessible spaces and places like government and industry to kind of create those conversations. We, we have a polarized country around the renewable energy transition. We, and that polarization, we do have the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation coming up. So what connections do you see between clean energy projects and Indigenous communities and reconciliation? Yeah, definitely. There's, there's, there's some major linkages. What I see is that many Indigenous communities for a long time have not had a say in what happens in and on their territories. And so we, like, say, for example, the community that I come from, we're we're surrounded by oil, gas, logging, fracking, tar sands. But has our community had a say in that? Barely, you know, if not any. And so that is completely connected to reconciliation, because if you still have ongoing grievances till this day, then a sorry from, you know, 100 years ago, can it can only go so far. Like we, we need to see true reconciliation. And this is energy sovereignty is one place where it can start. Melina Labakan Massimo, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to talking with you again soon. Me too. Thanks so much. I can't wait to explore more of these inspiring stories with you. For our next story, I want you to meet Paul Landry in New Brunswick. He lives in Cap Pelé. It's a fishing community that's part of the town of Cap Acadie. And there's a coastline there of roughly 55 kilometers. And Paul lives right by the water. I've looked at some photos, and it is stunning. On a good day, I can see the Confederation Bridge. Which is the bridge uh, to PEI? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I can also see the fireworks on July 1st when it's the clear day and 
in Summerside, Prince Edward Island. So I'm right on the water. I'm already jealous. <laughs> I wonder if you could tell me about what it's like to experience a sunrise there on a clear day. Well, I'm, <laughs> I actually have beautiful sunrises every morning. Oh, okay. I'm serious, every morning, <laughs> because the sun rises over the water, uh, right in front of, 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 of my place. And uh, we have extra. And uh, what's interesting is every time we have a significant storm, we get the most beautiful sunrises. We get uh, rainbows, and we get just this beautiful weather, like if it was announcing that something terrible was going to happen. Well, one year ago, something terrible did happen. I've never seen the sea like that before in my life. Um, the waves were crashing over the seawall and hitting the house the neighbor across the road, him and his son, so he tied a rope around his belly and or around himself and walked across the road because the current from the tide and from Fiona was extremely, and he went across and helped these two people cross the road and brought them over to their house. Oh, the sound was really huge. Like, I have never experienced this. I have been living in PEI for six years. I think this is the first time. It was so scary, and there was no power. So I was just scared about that thing. The house was there on the foundation, and it just slipped. I mean, all those trees, um, they just break and uh, fall on the house, and it's a total loss. All the water came and came inside, and... I mean, it's, it's over. It's hard. 25 years, it's gone. And you can hear the emotion there. That, that is actually from a year ago when post-tropical storm Fiona swept through the Maritimes. Paul, I'm wondering, what do those voices bring up for you? Um, I remember this if, if it was a yesterday. Obviously, people were very scared. Uh, we were very unprepared. For, uh, for Fiona. And although there was significant damage, I really feel for uh, one of your last um, uh, interviews when she talked about the significant amount of loss of trees. Um, you can lose infrastructure, but when you lose trees that have been there for 75, 100 years, and look at the devastation that, uh, that it represents for the coastline, uh, that's really hard to swallow. And Paul, you actually experienced this yourself. After Fiona, you started a community group, a, a citizens network along the southeast coast of New Brunswick to better prepare for hurricanes. Why did you want to start the group? Well, Fiona was the last a drop. Uh, Fiona really made us realize that we had to stop complaining uh, and feel helpless about what was going on and that we had to, as citizens, look at ways to reduce the risks associated with the damages that are caused by the storms. And so what are you hoping to provide each other that perhaps local authorities or other authorities aren't providing? Um, moral support when things do happen, uh, helping each other out. One of the things that we've learned from Fiona is we were not prepared and that we need to be better, better prepared. And I think for Lee, we were better prepared. And that's sure, Lee, Lee was the one was the hurricane that just hit you guys or brushed near you guys just a few days ago. And I want to talk about that too as well. Sure. So you're you're trying to figure out all the things that you can do proactively. 
This group, it's actually meeting in person for the first time this week at your place. How much interest has there been? Uh, The interest has been extraordinary. I was expecting, I was not expecting uh, the amount of property owners to show interest. Uh, It's double the production. There are over 60 property owners in my small community that uh, have expressed interest in joining the group. But more importantly, Laura, um, it's the enthusiasm that people are showing and the optimism that they're showing that by working together that we can make a difference. So, uh, and we didn't feel that with Tiona. I'm hearing people that are saying, we've chosen this way of life. We live in a rural setting. We live on the coastline. And we're going to do the best to make sure that um, we can make our, 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 our stay here um, as, as secure as possible. As you mentioned before, another hurricane season is here. Post-tropical storm Lee just moved through your area. So tell me what that was like for you. We were actually quite fortunate uh, in that uh, there was very little damage as compared to Fiona. Uh, the winds were uh, very strong. Uh, the surges in the water were significant. Uh, the big difference was the amount of rain. We get about half of the amount of rain that we get with Fiona. Right. Did, did the lessons from Fiona come in handy this time around with with Lee? Oh, absolutely. Uh, um we saw, for instance, this is a fishing community. It's lobster season here. We saw fishermen for the first time in, since I've been here actually take their boats out of the water. They did not do that with Fiona, and they paid the price. Um, we have stairways going to the beach. The beach doesn't belongs to everyone, but the stairways belong to us. I saw dozens of, 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 of stairways being taken out 48 hours before any indication that the storm was going to hit. We have not seen that before. With Fiona, it almost looked like a parade um, because there were so many cars on the road. People were curious uh, to see specifically what damages were done. This time, it was my community was a little ghost town. So there's a change of behavior that's occurred that I think is good, and we want to build on that. It's interesting, though. You say that, that really you were spared largely this time, and yet there was one casualty of Lee for you. You were actually supposed to have your first meeting of your citizens group on the weekend, and it had to be postponed. We thought it was important for the property owners to stay home, uh, to basically prepare, and then to wait out the storm. And uh, we're going to be, we're going to be meeting at my place, with probably an excellent sunny day, and we'll have our discussions at that point in time, and we'll decide practically as to what we want to do uh, as a group in the short term. This group is interested in what can we do to ensure that our ecosystem uh, blends well uh, with uh, or or can be changed to accommodate uh, these storms, and what can we use uh, in terms of Uh, plants in terms of trees um, to make our coast, uh, you know, much, much more resilient to the type of storms that we have. It is wonderful to hear about your initiative and the neighbours who are helping neighbours. But I'm wondering, do you need more support from governments as you face future hurricanes? Oh, absolutely. We believe that governments need to uh, create incentives in order to encourage owners to invest in their properties. We realize insurance companies are more and more reluctant to pay out 
large amounts to fix these things. So we're saying, let's create an incentive that encourages property owners to invest on their property, uh, on their shorelines. If our shorelines are not healthy, the beaches won't. Paul Landry, I wish you all the best as you move forward with this initiative and to your neighbours as well. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me, Laura. And now we've got some time for some other climate change news from the past week. Canada was taken to task at the UN Climate Ambition Summit in New York a few days ago. A slight smile crossed Justin Trudeau's face as he was put on the spot at the Global Assembly. Thank you, Your Excellency. I would now like to welcome His Excellency Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, to take the floor. Prime Minister, Canada was one of the largest expanders of fossil fuel last year. Could you tell us the steps that Canada is taking to align with the Secretary General's acceleration agenda to safeguard 1.5 and to deliver climate justice? Now, I just want to note, Trudeau is not the head of state in Canada, so he's not normally addressed as His Excellency. Aside from that, though, the Prime Minister plunged in with plans to do better on climate. Canada has already committed to reduce by 2030 methane emissions from the oil and gas sector by at least 75% below 2012 levels. Today, I can announce that the draft regulations we will share soon will be designed to help us exceed this already ambitious target. So no details yet. But climate activists say the real problem right now is measuring, verifying and reporting just how much methane is released suggesting government has no real idea. Methane is considered worse than CO2. It has 80 times more warming power for the first 20 years that it's in the atmosphere. At the same gathering, a Canadian fire chief, Jason Broland of West Kelowna in BC, held his audience spellbound as he talked about the wildfires there just weeks ago. We were dug in, it was the fight of our lives. Four weeks ago, my community was devastated. A firefighter said to me afterwards that it was like fighting a hundred years of fire all in one night. Roland wondered aloud if all the money spent on putting out the flames, more than $20 million, not including insurance payouts, could be better spent preventing fires. Global heating made the floods that ravaged Libya and Greece recently more likely. That's the conclusion from the World Weather Attribution Network of Scientists. The group uses established methods to rapidly investigate extreme weather as soon as it happens. While the warming made the rainfall more intense, the group claims other factors, such as insufficiently reinforced dams, are responsible for the humanitarian crisis. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. And remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts while you're there. Please leave us a review. We want to know what you think. And that is all for us this week. The show was put together by Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Vivian Luck, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. Special thanks this week to Deborah Wilson and Mary Catherine McIntosh. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.